Is it presumptuous to think that I can only preach for 30 minutes? Is that, is that what happened? Pastor Dan calling an audible there and adding an additional hymn for us to sing. Uh, a week and a half ago now when we were in Africa, Dr. Brett Williams and I, I was speaking at a, a conference there and they gave the speakers an hour to preach for each session. And so I was in trouble. How does Pastor Matt preach for an hour? Well, I'll tell you, I preached two sermons back to back, right? <laughs> That's how we got it done. But we have just a bit more than a half an hour now to, to look at God's Word. Psalm 98 is where we'll be this evening. On Sunday evenings, I've been preaching from selected psalms. And tonight, we're going to study Psalm 98, as was just read for us corporately and then sung. It's a psalm that has Christmas connections, for Psalm 98 serves as the basis for that familiar Christmas carol, Joy to the World. And in fact, that is the title of my message from Psalm 98 this evening, Joy to the World. However, I think we can add some clarification and qualification to our understanding of that Christmas carol, that hymn, and of course, the text of Psalm 98. Let me pause for prayer, and then we can get into the psalm. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for the old, old story. Thank you for the story of your love for us in the person of Jesus Christ. And Lord, may we never weary of telling the old, old story, and may we ask for it to be rehearsed over and over again for us in our hearing. God, this evening as we come to the Holy Scripture, as we read and study Psalm 98, may we understand its meaning, the text in its context, and may we make right application of it for ourselves today. I pray in Jesus' name, amen. Psalm 98 is simply titled a psalm. That is a song. I've written there at the top of your notes if you picked up a copy there in the foyer. Psalm 98 is a song. It's a song of celebration for what God has done past tense, and what God will do, future tense, for his people in the sight of all the world. And the psalm is framed by these historic and future aspects. If you look at verse number one, we find what God has done. Verse one points us backward to history when it says in verse one that God has done marvelous things. What marvelous things are in mind? Well, nothing is specifically named, but there are a lot of things that we could choose from the course of history. And then second, what God will do. Verse nine, at the, the end of the psalm, verse nine points us forward to the future when it says that God is coming to judge the earth with righteousness, he will judge the world, a definite reference to the second coming of Jesus. And so we look back, the marvelous things that God has done, and we look forward to what God will do someday. Psalm 98 can be divided into three stanzas of three verses each. In fact, your Bible, your English Bible, may be formatted with some spacing between verses three and four, and again between verses six and seven to reflect those divisions, those stanzas. It makes for a very easy three-point outline this evening. Thematically, thematically, we can recognize the first stanza, verses one through three, to describe past salvation. The second stanza, verses four through six, to describe present reign. And the third stanza, verses seven through nine, to describe future judgments. 
The first stanza is directed at the house of Israel. The second stanza is directed at all the peoples of the earth. The third stanza is directed at the works of creation. And, and if I gave that to you too quickly, it's, it's okay, because in fact, the notes that I prepared will reflect that very structure and will help us work our way through the psalm. Let's begin Psalm 98, verse number one. Oh, sing to the Lord a new song. For he has done marvelous things. His right hand and his holy arm have gained him the victory. The Lord has made known his salvation, his righteousness he has revealed in the sight of the nations. He has remembered his mercy and his faithfulness to the house of Israel. All the ends of the earth have seen the salvation of our God. Number one, the house of Israel should praise the Lord for his past salvation. The house of Israel should praise the Lord for his past salvation. Salvation. What marvelous things, verse number one, did God do in the sight of the nations, verse number two? In what way did the nations of the earth, all the nations of the earth, see the salvation of Israel's God, verse number three? Let me offer some historic examples. That's letter A, examples of God's salvation. Examples of God's salvation in the past. Think about the exodus of Israel from Egypt. God delivered Israel from Egypt, perhaps the greatest historic example of God's salvation of Israel. At the Red Sea, Moses told God's people to stand still and see the salvation of the Lord. And I promise you, the news of the exodus of two million Hebrew slaves from Egypt and their safe passage through the Red Sea was front page news all around the world. The people of the world feared. How do I know that? After the crossing of the Red Sea, Moses sang a song in Exodus 15. We call it, of course, the Song of Moses. And we know the famous refrain from Moses' song, the horse and its rider he has thrown into the sea. However, there's another part in Exodus 15. Listen, the people will hear and be afraid. Sorrow will take hold of the inhabitants of Philistia. Then the chiefs of Edom will be dismayed. The mighty men of Moab, trembling, will take hold of them. All the inhabitants of Canaan will melt away. Fear and dread will fall on them. By the greatness of your arm, catch that phrase in Exodus 15, by the greatness of your arm, they will be as still as a stone till your people pass over, O Lord, till your people pass over whom you have purchased. Psalm 98, verse number one, talks about God's arm winning the victory. More about that in a a few moments. And so we might think of an example of God's salvation in the past for the house of Israel, of course, is the Exodus. But beyond the Exodus, we could think about the conquest. And I don't have these as subpoints for you in your notes, but these are just um, historic examples that occur to me the Exodus and then the conquest. Israel defeated her enemies in the promised land, defeating the fortified cities in Canaan, beginning with Jericho. And what is remarkable about the conquest is that Israel was not a military superpower. They were displaced slaves. They were refugees. They were migrants. And yet God gave them the victory, verse number one, against all odds over and over again. And once again, the nations of the world trembled for Israel and her God. So think about this. If it It's true that Israel conquered the the promised land in a dramatic fashion, destroying the wicked nations in the land. However, sometimes we 
we, we get the impression that Israel marched through the promised land and leveled everything everywhere, but that's not necessarily the case. Deuteronomy chapter six, Moses told Israel, so it shall be when the Lord your God brings you into the land of which he swore to your fathers, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, to give you large and beautiful cities which you did not build, houses full of all good things which you did not fill, hewn out wells which you did not dig, vineyards and olive trees which you did not plant. When you have eaten and are full, then beware lest you forget the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt from the house of bondage. You see, in most cases, as Israel conquered the promised land, they were first destroying the fortified cities, but then they simply occupied the other countless cities in the land because the people surrendered without a fight. They had heard of Israel. They had heard of Israel's God, all that God had done for Israel, bringing them out of Egypt through the Red Sea in the wilderness, sustaining them, the defeat at Jericho, They were so fearful of Israel and her God, they didn't resist. So we think about the exodus. We think about the conquest. How about the return? We might think about the return as an example of God's salvation, Israel's return from exile in Babylon to rebuild Jerusalem. It was God's promised plan for them, Jeremiah 29. God promised Israel through the prophet Jeremiah, I will bring you back from your captivity I will gather you from all the nations and from all the places where I have driven you, says the Lord, and I will bring you to the place from which I caused you to be carried away captive. Folks, praise God for these things, these examples, and and many, many more. There is reason to sing a new song because God has done marvelous things. Psalm 98, verse number one. And this evening, I would submit to us that we need to be able to point to the works of God in our own lives and praise him for them. What has God done for you in your life? Has he protected you? Has he provided for you? Has he providentially ordered circumstances to bring you to this point in your life? It is an important exercise for the people of God, whether Old Testament Israel or the New Testament church, that we rehearse and review and rejoice in the works of God. It's for that reason that we sing. We sing songs and hymns and spiritual songs to testify to these things, the marvelous things that God has done. To God be the glory, great things he has done. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. God is so good. And ultimately, beyond God's providence in our physical lives is God's provision in our spiritual lives. So we can cite the exodus. We can cite the the conquest. We can cite the return for Israel. We can cite redemption now for us. The grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men. And that is the Christmas story when the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And for that reason, we sing. We sing, thank you, Lord, for saving my soul. Redeemed how I love to proclaim it. Saved, saved, saved. I will sing of my Redeemer. A newer hymn we've sung recently, chosen as God's children. So the examples of God's salvation that we can Sites are are numerous. I've given you a few. The house of Israel should praise the Lord for his past salvation 
examples of God's salvation as I've cited, but those examples only answer the what question. They don't answer the the how or the why questions. That would be letter B, explanation of God's salvation. Explanation of God's salvation. And the explanation of God's salvation for which we ought to sing, Psalm 98, is because of God's character. And I think I've, I've told you many times, anytime that we go to the scripture and we read the scripture, we need to read with an eye to see the person of God and his character as revealed in the affairs of men. And this evening, we can do that very exercise just now in this text, in these verses. Read with a mind to learn about the person of God and his character as revealed in the affairs of men. So, if we come to Psalm 98, verse number one, O sing to the Lord a new song, for he has done marvelous things. His right hand and his holy arm have gained him the victory. What do we learn about God? What's the explanation of God's salvation here? It is, number one, God's power. God's power, the marvelous things, verse one, were accomplished by God's right hand and his holy arm, verse number one. It is God's power that gained the victory. God is omnipotent. Nothing is impossible for him, and when we are faced with something that is beyond our ability, that is beyond our affordability, that is beyond our answerability or controllability or solveability. I I don't even know if those are words, but you understand the point I'm, I'm trying to make. When we are faced with something that we are unable to accomplish, we must cast ourselves upon the capability of an omnipotent God as he holds us in his everlasting arms. He is able. Do you believe that? We sing the, the song, or at least we used to sing the song when we were children. He's able, he's able. I know he's able. I know my Lord is able to carry me through. In our sophisticated adulthood, we sing other songs. We sing the mighty power of God. Praise to the Lord the Almighty. How great thou art. An explanation of God's salvation begins with God's power in verse number one. How about verse number two? Psalm 98, verse number two, the Lord has made known his salvation, his righteousness he has revealed in the sight of the nations. What do we learn about God in verse number two? That's number two in your notes, God's righteousness. God's righteousness is his perfection in morality and in virtue and in word and deed. In fact, at the very end of the psalm, verse number nine, at the very last line, God will come to judge the earth with righteousness. He shall judge the world and the peoples with equity, or, or it might be translated uprightness. This is the righteousness of God. And when God says something and God does something, it is always right. What do we sing? We sing of Jesus' blood and righteousness. God's righteousness. Verse number three. He has remembered his mercy and his faithfulness to the house of Israel. All the ends of the earth have seen the salvation of our God. What do we learn about God? In verse number three, number three, God's loving kindness. The word translated mercy there in my new King James, it's a rich term. It's the Hebrew, kased. 
maybe translated loving kindness if you have the New American Standard or steadfast love in the ESV. It's an expression of God's compassion toward us. And if God's righteousness demands punishment for sin, God's mercy or loving kindness or steadfast love provides the forgiveness of that sin. And so we sing, what songs do we sing? Oh, how he loves you and me. We sing, oh, love that will not let me go. We sing, surely, goodness and mercy. Behold what manner of love. We sing these songs, these hymns, these spiritual songs about the character of God, his loving kindness, number three, his loving kindness. Number four, also found in verse three, number four would be God's faithfulness. There in verse three, He has remembered his mercy, his loving kindness, his steadfast love, and his faithfulness to the house of Israel. God's faithfulness is the fulfillment of God's promises. That's Israel's hope. Israel is banking everything on the faithfulness of God. And we do the same. So how do we sing? Great is thy faithfulness. And here the psalmist is presenting a song that is calling for the house of Israel to praise the Lord, to sing for joy because of what God has done. And what God has done is because of who God is. His character there is the explanation of his salvation. Stanza number one. Stanza number two, verses four through six. Shout joyfully to the Lord, all the earth. Joy to the world, if you will. Verse four, break forth in song, rejoice and sing praises. Sing to the Lord with the harp, with the harp and the sound of a psalm, with trumpets and the sound of a horn. Shout joyfully before the Lord, the King. Number one, the house of Israel should praise the Lord for his past salvation. Number two now in verses four through six, the people of the earth shall praise the Lord for his present reign, for his present reign. I hope you can sense the, the, the mood here of the psalm. It's, a, it's an exclamation. It's a double exclamation. It's sing, shout, rejoice, and again, sing and shouts. Use instrumentation to make some noise is what he's saying in verses four through six. My daughter, Clara, is in the fifth grade. And just a couple months ago, she began um, with a new instrument, she is learning to play the trumpet. And so our house is filled with music, once again, as my fifth grade daughter plays the trumpet. And we often uh, exclude her or recuse her to her bedroom or downstairs while she plays, practices her trumpet. I think she might know six or eight notes by now. And, um, but here's the thing, the dog, right? The dog howls and howls while she plays her trumpet. And so either the trumpet's got to go or the dog's got to go, all right? (laughs) Use instrumentation to make some noise. Shout, be obnoxious, is what the psalm is telling us to do. Praise the Lord for his present reign. But this, this music isn't for our own entertainment which is often how we begin with our music. It's for the worship of the Lord, the King. And the psalmist has something in mind by naming Yahweh as King. It it speaks of God's sovereignty. It speaks of his authority. It speaks of his rule and reign. And if he is the King, then we must submit to him. And so for this reason, we sing songs 
of the sovereignty and the rule and the reign of God as king. Sing praise to God who reigns above. If you can hear these melodies in your mind. Praise my soul, the king of heaven. Oh, worship the king, a king, God, on his throne in heaven above is ruling and reigning. On the back of your notes, I've I've copied some truths about God's throne, maybe just a, a brief theology of God's throne. This is not entirely original with me but perhaps something that's worth our our meditation. I'll read through this quickly. God's throne is a place of power and authority. The the Old Testament prophets receive visions of God's throne room. Of course, the most familiar to us would be the prophet Isaiah. In Isaiah chapter six, I saw the Lord high and lifted up on on a throne. God's throne is a place of majesty and honor. There is no higher place than heaven where Jesus is exalted to sit down at the right hand of the throne of God. God's throne is a place of perfect justice. He has prepared his throne for judgment. The final judgment described in Revelation 20 is held at a great white throne. God's throne is a place of sovereignty and holiness. God reigns over the nations. He's seated on his holy throne. There are scripture references that I've copied for you there. God's throne is a place of praise. John's vision in the book of Revelation uh, pictures the heavenly beings in perpetual worship around the throne, praising God, and God's praise is glorious. God's throne is a place of purity. Only the redeemed, those who have been granted the righteousness of Christ, will have the right to stand before his throne. It's a place of eternal life. In heaven, John saw the river of the water of life as clear as crystal flowing from the throne of God. God's throne is a place of grace. Through our high priest, Jesus Christ, we can go to his throne of grace to find help and mercy and grace in time of of need. And one day, all of creation, all of the nations, all of the peoples will bow to the majesty of God's throne. Every knee will bow, every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord, Philippians chapter two. And there at the throne, someday, we will lay our crowns before God and ascribe glory and honor and power to him. And so we simply recognize here the people of the earth shall praise the Lord for his present reign. God of gods, Lord of lords, King of kings. The third stanza, verse number seven. Psalm 98, verse seven, let the sea roar and all its fullness, the world and those who dwell in it. Let the rivers clap their hands. Let the hills be joyful together before the Lord, for he is coming to judge the earth. With righteousness he shall judge the world and the peoples with equity or uprightness. This would be number three. The works of creation should praise the Lord for his future judgments. We've got Israel praising the Lord for his past salvation. We have the people of the earth praising the Lord for his present reign, and then the works of creation praising the Lord for his future judgment. And and with poetic language, the psalmist is calling on creation to join the chorus and praise the Lord. The seas and the rivers and the hills, these things are to praise God. But the curious thing here in these final verses is that their praise is because of God's pending judgments. That seems counterintuitive. It seems contradictory. The day will come when the Lord God will judge the earth. Why would you praise God for that? Because he will redeem the earth from the curse. 
Romans chapter eight tells us that all creation groans in eager anticipation of the day when it will be delivered from the bondage of corruption. And someday the curse of sin on creation will be reversed when God's final judgment is rendered. And for that reason, creation praises God for his coming pending future judgment. Now, what do we do with this psalm? What do we do with Psalm 98? I guess we are compelled to sing, as we have done yet already this evening, to sing a song of joy. So it was in 18, I'm sorry, in 1719, British pastor Isaac Watts wrote a hymn based on Psalm 98 in an effort to capture and communicate its message. The name of the hymn, it was titled, The Messiah's Coming and His Kingdom. You've never heard the title of that hymn, but you do know the hymn, because today we call it Joy to the World. It's hymn 125 in our hymnals there before you, Joy to the World, and and today we sing it at Christmas time, but it's more than a Christmas carol, it really looks beyond the first coming of Jesus to the second coming of Jesus. Joy to the World is a hymn, it's a carol that could or should be sung year round. Let me explain how that we might rightly understand and, and express the hymn as, as something past, present, and future. Your, your notes are completed, we, we've read through the psalm. Let me clarify and qualify the the meaning and the expression of the hymn Joy to the World in in the past. And so think of the past, think of the present, and think of the the future. In the past, we can rightly sing at Christmas time regarding the past, joy to the world, the Lord is come, or the Lord has come. Joy to the world, the Lord has come. In his first advent, his incarnation, what we celebrate at Christmas time, because Jesus was come to make it possible for his blessings to flow as far as the curse is found. You see, without Jesus' first advent, his first coming, there would be no basis upon which those blessings could flow. Jesus' first coming accomplished the future redemption of all who believe. Joy to the world, the Lord is come, the Lord has come. His blessings flow as far as the curse is found. One author, John Bloom, helps us in this way. He says, when the angel visited Mary, the angel told Mary that she would conceive miraculously a child, a son, and he will be great and will be called the son of the most high and that God would give to him the throne of his father David and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever and of his kingdom there will be no end. So Jesus' first coming His advent, Christmas time, points to the second coming of Jesus in judgment in the future to rule and to reign on the throne of David. When Paul wrote to the Philippians, he said Jesus was born in the likeness of men so that he would suffer death on a cross and then be highly exalted and proclaimed to be Lord by everyone. Every knee will bow and every tongue will confess Someday. And so we have both the first advent and the second coming of Christ really considered in in juxtaposition. That's in in the past. 
In the present, how do we rightly sing joy to the earth, the Savior reigns? It's part of the, the hymn, joy to the world. Joy to the earth, the Savior reigns. In what way does, was, does Jesus reign now? Well, we know that someday he will literally reign on the throne of David in the millennial kingdom for a thousand years. But in the meantime, in the present, how is it that the Savior reigns? Paul said in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 25, Jesus must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. There is an aspect in which Jesus is reigning now. Seated at the right hand of God the Father, we must submit to his lordship now, knowing that someday every knee will bow. So we have the past, we have the present. How about the future? Ultimately, in the future, Jesus will rule with truth and grace. Another phrase from the hymn, Joy to the World. And that's what John wrote of in in John chapter one, verse 17. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Ultimately, someday, Psalm 98, verse number nine, for he is coming to judge the earth. With righteousness, he shall judge the world and the peoples with equity or uprightness. In a moment, we're gonna conclude by singing the hymn, Joy to the World. It's very appropriate for us to sing Joy to the World at this season, at Christmas time. It's also very right and appropriate for us to sing this Christmas carol, not only thinking of Jesus' first coming, but looking forward to his second coming, his second advent. Think beyond the manger. Think beyond Christmas time to when he comes as conquering king, and there will fully and finally be joy to the world. Let's pray. Lord, I ask that you would help us to have hearts that sing that we will have mouths that sing, that we rejoice and and celebrate with, with the greatest expressions our joy in the coming of Jesus Christ and in his second coming. Lord, I pray that you would give us this joy, for I pray it in Jesus' name.